Okay. We've, um, beginning of the year, I outlined 12 steps for us as a church, things we're looking at to do this year um, by God's grace to help us move forward as a church, help us grow, help us um, kind of work out all the things God's called us to. And one of them was we were going to preach through the entire Gospel of John this year. If you've uh, missed any of the sermons, they're all on our website. You can go and catch up with them. We've um, come to kind of the end of chapter 3 at this point. So we're motoring through it nicely. Um, And today's passage is an interesting one. It um, comes in the end of chapter, it's the end of a section um, that John has kind of laid out in his gospel that's teaching a lot of points. And it's, as we get to the end of this section, it's a kind of the final part we're going to see of John the Baptist. He turned up in chapter 1, he's come back, and it's about kind of him finishing sort of his ministry and the focus of his ministry. And he's pointing it all um, to Jesus. He's saying it's going to be all about him, it's all about him, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And as I reflected on this and as I was preparing about this, I thought about times when we, we have events and we go to places that are not about us, they're about somebody else and how we react to them. And I don't know about you, but I've been to a number of weddings over the years, um, various kinds, and I've been to weddings as a guest. You know, you've turned up and you sat through the kind of the ceremony and the celebration. I've been to weddings and I've been the usher, one of the ushers who kind of, you have to wear kind of the, the suits and you help people sit and you basically generally, you know, get involved in organising and helping the day run. Once I was even a best man. My brother got married, I was his best man, so I had responsibilities there. I had to do the speech, you know, the best man's speech as part of it and I was organising the stag event, etc, etc. And there's a couple of times when Mel and I have been asked to pray for a couple and say, you know, we're going to pray for them, pray a blessing over them during their marriage ceremony. And they said, well, people have asked us to do it. And there's even once I've been a minister at the wedding where I've actually conducted the service. So actually the couple have come in and I've been the one doing the bits and pieces. And actually I'm coming, we're going to be doing it again. Joe and Anna are getting married um, in June and I'll, I'll be conducting that service. But the odd thing about a wedding, imagine going to a wedding and actually you've got the bride and groom there, but actually you make it about you. Wouldn't it be the weirdest thing in the world if I turned up at a wedding and I was going to conduct the ceremony and I I said, right, welcome everyone today. I'm glad you've come to see me. And as the minister here, let me just tell you all about myself. And maybe I launched into a kind of a little monologue about myself and my life and the things that I had done and, you know, why I was there and the thing, you know, funny stories about me. That would be considered quite odd, quite... Actually, that would probably be considered quite rude and people would be looking around being like... What's going on here? Why is this guy talking about himself? Because when it comes to a wedding, it's not about the minister or the best man or the guests or the ushers or even the bridesmaids. Who's it about? It's about the bride and the groom. They're the ones getting married. They're the ones that it all should be focused on. They're the ones we're looking at because we're there to celebrate their day. If they weren't there, we wouldn't be there. There'd be no point in turning up. You wouldn't turn up to a wedding and all the guests and everyone piles in and if the bride and groom turn up, there's actually really no point continuing. Well, maybe you might like the food, let's go and eat the food anyway. But actually, for a wedding, it's, there's no point if there's no bride or groom, because they're the focus of the day. They're the ones that we should be looking at. And as we get this passage in John, it's like that. John actually uses that analogy of the wedding, and actually, who should we be looking to? Who should we be pointing to? So let's just read this text, and we'll see, you'll see that image come out. This is what, what John the Baptist is trying to get people to look at, and John, the, the, the author of the Gospels, put this part of the the story in, so we can learn from it. It says, verse 22, chapter 3, verse 22. After this, 
Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptising. John was also baptising at Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptised for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptising and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the, who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He who bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. Right, this section here in chapter 3 kind of brings to the end something that John, the Gospel author, started in chapter beginning of chapter 2. We've had the first part of chapter 2 was the wedding at Cana, water into wine, that very famous miracle. And basically the message of that was Jesus brings the new wine in the kingdom. It surpasses the old wine of the old kingdom. Something new has begun. There is a new way of entering that. A new, he got rid of the old ceremonial washing because the wine came out of the, the ceremonial purification jars. We have the end of chapter 2 where Jesus goes and cleanses the temples. And he makes a statement that actually I'm going to break down this temple, destroy it, and I'll build it in three days in my body. And he's saying, actually, the way to meet God now is no longer in this temple, in this place in Jerusalem. It's now in me. I'm the new temple. I'm the place you come if you want to meet God. We have the beginning of chapter 3, where Jesus talks about this new birth that, that comes. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to go through this new birth. You've got to be washed by uh, water and the Spirit, he said, uh, quoting Ezekiel. The prophecy saying, actually, you must be born again. And he again alludes to his death, saying he must be lifted up for this to be happened, raised up like that snake in the desert. And this final part, um, we see John, the Gospel author, saying actually Jesus surpasses even John the Baptist, the great prophet, in actually he's the one who it's all about. He's, what, he's the one that we should focus on. So let's go through what we've got here. The first section, uh, interesting, it's about baptism. The first few verses, it talks about Jesus goes out uh, into one of the rural areas around Jerusalem. And it's not often, it's only mentioned in this Gospel, the other one. Jesus obviously baptised people as well. Although it's made clear at the beginning of chapter 4 that it was disciples who baptised people. But John the Baptist is known as that because he, he baptised people for repentance. But Jesus also had that same ministry. He would preach and teach the crowds would come to him and actually they would be baptised too. So it was very much part of uh, that ministry. He was doing it near that place, Anon near Salem. 
most likely in Samaria, which actually, the meaning of that is actually just many waters, which John is teeing up what's going to happen in chapter 4 when we actually enter Samaria and we have the famous bit where Jesus talks to the woman in the well. And so this is what happens. So you've got John is continuing his ministry, baptising people. Jesus has kind of launched into his ministry and people are coming to him and being baptised. And this thing about baptism, that's a mark of a follower of Jesus. It's a mark of a disciple. It signifies, when people got baptised, they went down into the water, under the water, in the river or wherever it was, um, which meant they died. Not actually, literally. If they were held down too long, that would happen. But they would go down under the water briefly. It signified dying to an old way of life. And they would come up out of the water, rising to a new life, a new life of repentance. They turned away from that old life. They died to it. They had come a new life um, following Jesus. And Jesus, if we go to the end of Matthew's Gospel, that's what he commanded his followers to do. He said, you know, I'm going back to heaven. What are you guys going to do? Well, you need to go into all the nations of the world need to teach them what I've taught you, and that they need to be baptised in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what he commanded them to do. It's very much a straight command of Jesus. Jesus himself was baptised. He kind of modelled it, and then he told the church, after his kind of ascension, uh, you go baptise people too. And it becomes a normal practice of the church. If you read through the book of Acts, after Jesus has gone to heaven, and the Spirit of God has come on the church, and they're now rolling out into the world, proclaiming the good news, what do they do? Well, Peter stands up at Pentecost, preaches a sermon. It says they were cut to the heart. And they said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent of your sins and be baptised. And so actually it was very much part of the past of the early church. A believer got baptised. You go through the book of Acts, we have the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter, uh, Acts chapter 8 with Philip. Philip's out in the desert, he meets this guy, he's reading the scroll of the prophet Isaiah saying, I don't understand this. And Philip turns up and says, let me explain it to you. It all points to Jesus. The guy then puts his faith and trust in Jesus and is like, what do I do now? And Philip's like, well, there's water over there. Let's go baptise you. So he gets him up out of the chariot. They go down, they get him baptised. And then Philip's off and the, um, the Ethiopian is off back to his own country. Even uh, move on to Acts chapter 9 with Saul, uh, the, the Christian kind of persecutor, hated Christians, murdered them. You know, wanted to destroy them. Jesus appears to him, the risen Lord Jesus. He's knocked off his horse, blinded. He goes into the city, um, uh, Damascus, and there one of the other believers comes and prays for him. His sight is returned. And then what immediately happens? He's gone he's baptised as a new, new believer and a follower of Jesus. It's something that believers are to do. It's an act of obedience because Jesus commands it. So it's actually as a response, we do it because Jesus has asked us to do it. It's all about him, that whole thing. He's commanded us, therefore we do it. And my story is similar. I don't know if you've been baptised here, but it's very much what we believe as a church. If you're a believer, you've made a confession of faith, you want to follow Jesus, you're a Christian, the response to that is get baptised. I grew up in a tradition where that wasn't taught, and so I was totally ignorant of it. But when I went away, I was at university, I actually became a Christian. I'd been church going, but never really known the Lord. I hadn't been born again, if we look at last week's teaching. I became a Christian, I got saved. And then one of the girls in the, um, the Christian union I was a part of, her name was Wendy, challenged me about this. She said, have you ever been baptised? And I said, no, I've been sprinkled as a baby. I got confirmed as like a young teenager. I had no idea what that meant, but I did it because that's what everyone did in the church. She said, well, have you ever actually been baptised as a believer? You're now a believer. And I said, no. And she said, why don't you go and read the Bible <laughs> and find out what it says, which I always think is dangerous when you say to someone that. Go and check what the Bible says. And she knew that. She was being crafty with me. So I went and read it and thought, oh, blooming yeah, I should go and get baptised. So I immediately responded, right, I want to go and get baptised. I went up to my church the other time and said, 
I'm a Christian, never been baptised, baptise me. Um, and on the 22nd of November 1998, last century, I was uh, baptised as a believer. And that was my response, and that was kind of, I responded to Jesus. And if you're, not a, if you're a believer here and you haven't been baptised, please come and talk to you. I'd love to talk to you about it. We baptise some people in this church. We love to do it. But it's the ministry of John the Baptist, the ministry of Jesus. It was the ministry of the early church. It's our ministry. That's what we do. We baptise um, believers in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that sets up the beginning of the story. Now, it moves on to the discussion, the meat of the story. And there is a, a clash between some of John's disciples, that's John the Baptist's disciples, and this Jew over purification. And they're obviously provoking, something's been provoked over the whole idea of ceremonial washing, which has come up in that story, the water into wine, about the new wine coming out of the ceremonial jars, Jesus cleansing the, the temple. And this obviously an issue has arose and a disagreement um, has arose in it. And they go to, and it provokes them to go to talk to their teacher, which is John. And his disciples go to him and they say, Rabbi, and they've noticed something. They sound a bit resentful and bitter. So this, this discussion has kind of provoked something in their heart. And so they go to their leader. They go to John and say, do you know what? Everyone's going over to Jesus to be baptised. We had a good thing going on here. We were, we were, we were the talk. We were the, we were the celebrity in Christian circles. We were the one everyone came to hear. We were the one who would sell out conference centres and stadiums because people would flood to us and they would hear you preach and they would repent and they would get baptised. And we had a good thing going. We were successful in our ministry. And now... This other chap's come on the scene, Jesus, he's turned up and he's going out and he's doing the same thing, but more people are going to him than coming to hear us. Our numbers are down. Our attendance has dipped and, and they seem a bit cheesed about that. And they kind of seem like, well, what are we gonna, you know, how are we going to respond to this? And John responds in a really interesting way. He just looks at them and he says in verse 27, um, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him. What an incredible response. John realised that what was happening was the right thing. He realised everything he had, everything he had seen, all his success in preaching and calling people to repentance and all that, and the crowds had come to talk to him, everything he'd had had been given from God. It wasn't his it wasn't based on his skill, his charisma, his personality, his gifts, because all of those things he recognised came from God, and even the mission he'd been put on was from God. He knew he'd been sent by God to proclaim a message, to make way for someone coming behind him, someone greater. And he knew that, he recognised that, and he didn't get blinded by his um, success. He was very clear that he wasn't the Christ. He was merely the herald making way for the Christ. Someone was coming behind him, something larger, someone greater, and, and, and that had gone deep down in him. So when it was happening right in front of his eyes, he didn't seem phased or bothered by it. The irony being, if he had been phased, it would undermine everything he had said in the first place. If he had been saying, I'm waiting for someone to come, and they're much better and greater than I, then he says, this is the one, here he is, Jesus, and then Jesus started getting success, and he started saying, oi, you shouldn't be so successful. It would undermine everything he'd said. He'd been sent by God to tell everyone about Jesus and then Jesus now is on the scene and if he kind of said, I don't like that anymore, it, it would have undermined everything he had gone before him and he would have been made out as a hypocrite. But he was content with his position. It's, it's a great sign of humility with him. And he's explaining this to his followers because they're like, 
Everyone's going over to Jesus. Everyone's going over to him. What's going to happen to us? He said, everything we've got is comes from God. It's not about us. And he uses a parable, the parable of a wedding, to help them understand. He says, you see, he said, you bear witness. You know I've said I'm not the Christ. Jesus is. I know that. And he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Now, the imagery John is... is um, is using here is something that's run through the Old Testament and actually is carried on into the New Testament. In the Old Testament, one of the prophetic imagery for God and the nation of Israel was like God was the bridegroom and Israel was like the bride. And what the point of that was, it showed the, the relationship between them. God was like a loving husband to his wife, the nation of Israel. And he would love them and he would lay down his life for them and he would care for them and protect them, just like any husband should love and care and protect his wife. And in response, Israel responds by, like a loving wife, that they would love um, God and they would be under his care and kind of protection and rulership. And that's the imagery. And that runs through the Old Testament. But actually, if you follow it through, it runs into the New Testament where Jesus actually now takes on that right. He is revealed as God. So he is the bridegroom, and the, the bride then actually becomes those who put their faith and trust in him, which is the church. So there's a kind of, a, kind of the picture grows on and it carries right on to the end in Revelation where it talks about the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven like a bride prepared for her husband. So this imagery runs all the way through the Bible and John is picking out the, new, the Old Testament part of it saying actually there is one coming, the one who has the bride, the one who the people are coming to, that's the bridegroom, that's the one we should be looking at, that's the guy, and he's clearly pointing out that is Jesus. John describes himself as the friend of the bridegroom. For us, we'd, we'd use the term best man. He's like the best man, and he says, I'm the friend of the bridegroom, I'm there to serve the bridegroom, and the way I get my joy, the way it works for me, is knowing that the bridegroom has got to his bride, that the bridegroom has turned up, he's come, and it's worked out. And if you go back to the picture of our kind of wedding ceremonies that we view, we've been a part of, we've seen, it's about the bride and the groom coming together and getting married. Anything else is a fail on that day. <laughs> Anything else just doesn't make it. Anyone who tries to take the spotlight, imagine the best man coming up and saying, let me tell you about me and funny stories about me. We would all instantly be like, this is wrong. You should be talking about the bride and the groom and usually telling funny stories about the groom and some of the things he's got up to, that's normal, because the focus is them. And John's saying that's just the same. The focus is Jesus. The focus is him. It's not about me. It's about him. And he even says at the end there, my joy is complete because I've seen that. Because I've actually I've preached about it and I've been waiting for it, and now he's come onto the scene, Jesus has, because this is the one, and now people are flocking to him. He actually, instead of being upset and sad for almost his ministry declining and what he's doing, his success taking a nosedive, he's actually, I am overwhelmed. My joy is complete. My joy is full because it's kind of, I've done the job and it's worth, you know, Jesus is here and people are going to him instead of me. And he makes that stunning statement at the end, doesn't he? He must, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. I mean, that is just, that is a key kind of verse that we should put over kind of our lives or any ministry you're involved in, or anything involved with serving God, is actually it's about him. It's about him getting bigger and relatively us getting smaller by comparison, that people look to him and not us. And John had totally grasped that. And facing kind of, what he was facing, and his, even his followers coming to him and stoking the fires, 
and saying, come on, look, it's not working. You know, we're, not, we're not winning anymore, these guys are. He's saying, no, this is the right thing. This is good and right. And I, I can almost wonder, did he even counsel his disciples to go and follow Jesus? I don't know. But actually, he, it seems that's, his, that's what he's set on. That's where he's going. And it's worth just, what comes out of here, that the attitude that John is dealing with uh, is the whole area of jealousy and actually being jealousy, jealous for the success of others, because that's what his disciples were bothered about. This guy's more successful than us. There was a jealousy. Now, jealousy's got two sides. There's a positive side to jealousy. God is actually described as a jealous God. You go into Exodus and Deuteronomy. He's, he's jealous for the love of his people, just like any husband should be jealous for the, the love of his wife. If you've made those vows, you've made that covenant arrangement, and you are together with me and my wife, if, my, if someone comes on the scene and tries to turn my wife's heart away from me onto them or onto another thing, as a husband, I should be rightfully jealous of that. It's, it's due me. I'm the husband. I'm the one you should love, and it should come to me. And likewise, if my heart is ever turned away and go onto someone else other than my wife... My wife should be rightly jealous, actually. I am her husband. I should love her. I should be devoted to her. I should be giving up my life for her. So if there's ever anywhere else, she has a right to be jealous because actually it should come towards her. And God is portrayed like that in the Old Testament as a, as a God for his people that they should, they should love him because they're his people and he is jealous for that love and he wants it. So there is, there is a positive side to jealousy but there is also a huge negative side which we're probably a lot more familiar with, that actually we can be jealous for the things of others, resentful for that, begrudging about that. And it's something, in some ways, that is almost encouraged in our day and age. You look at uh, magazines and TV, the media, with all their very clever and slick advertising, they almost play on this whole thing of being jealous. You know, this car's better than the one you've got. You know, the home is better, this is better, this gadget is better than the one you've got. Be jealous of what someone else has. They're trendsetters. They've got this thing. They're doing that. They're, they're living that. They're wearing that. They're doing that. And, and you almost, it provokes in you that jealousy. I want that. I want that. And I begrudge them because they have that. And I'm going to strive for that. And it can creep into the church. It can creep into us as the followers and the believers in Jesus, followers of God. It can creep in here. We can ask ourselves questions like, why did God answer their prayer and not mine? I've had, we had that when we were trying to sell a house uh, at a house move, where we were trying to follow God and move to a new town, and we lived in a kind of a set of houses, and about four of them were up for sale, and we we were commuting about an hour to go to work at the church and to live in the town, um, but we couldn't sell a house, so we were commuting back an hour each kind of day and trying to do life and community there. So we'd go very early in the morning, work, and then go to a small group and other things in the evening and kind of come back, you know, like getting back home about midnight sort of thing. We were doing that for months on end. And our house wouldn't sell, and the three other houses that we could see out of our window because of the way the houses were, it sold, sold, sold. And as you're standing there doing the washing up, you can feel this like, <coughs> Why is their cell? They they don't even love Jesus. I know them. You know they're not even Christians, God. And you're selling their house, and my house is not selling. And I'm trying to follow you and move and serve a church. And you know, and you can feel that sense of God. Why did you answer their prayer? They probably didn't even pray, but imagine they did. But you didn't answer mine. 
You can, have other, you can take other forms. Why are you using them for that particular ministry role? I would like to be doing that. I would like to be serving, working in that area, but you've chosen them to do it. They're doing it. Why did they get that kind of opportunity and not me? How come they get to, to have a go at that kind of thing? How come they get to play in the band and I don't? How come they get to serve in that area? How come they are so successful at filling the blank? At work, they've got the promotion, they've got a pay rise, they've got this opportunity, they've got opportunities to travel, and I haven't in my particular workplace. Why is their family looking like it's working and I seem to be struggling over issue after issue? All these kind of areas. And it's, it's not uncommon. We all face it in all areas of our life, in, in the spiritual and the mundane and everything mixed in between. It's, it's something that we're battling, just like these guys here when they came to John and they said, we, it was working and now it's not. They're all going over to that other preacher over there. How do we combat this? I think John points out three things for us that we can hold on to, that we can kind of put down. How do we combat this? How do we fight this? The first one is we recognise it all comes from God anyway. That's what John said, isn't it? He says you don't even have one thing, not one, unless it comes from above. Not one thing. He said there was no bitterness in John. He says it's all kind of, it seems to be declining what we're doing, but you don't have anything unless it comes from God. Everything you have, everything we have, comes from God. Go through it in your mind. Every relationship you have, family, friends, children, spouse, you know, siblings, parents, whatever, it all comes from God. Your work, whatever that looks like, is, comes from God. Everything you do there it comes from God. The income that you generate from that, it all comes from God. Every possession you have, the food in your cupboard that you're going to eat when you get home, the car that you came here in, the house you're going to go back to, all the clothes you wear, it all comes from God. And we need to be people who recognise that. And one of the ways to do that is to regularly thank him for it. Make it a daily practice to thank God for what you have in its myriad of forms. From the most kind of, you know, almost mundane thing that you could take for granted to the big things that, that happen in our life. Every day we try and pray with our boys every night when we go to bed. What are we going to say thank you for today? What happened today? Say thank you. I try and say thank you every time I eat. We don't do uh, grace formally in our house, but I try and just make a thank you every time I'm going to eat something. Thank you, Lord, for providing me with food. I've got a job to go to. Thank you when I'm, you know, I've got, I've got work. And many people who don't even have work who would love to work, and they don't. We need to be a thankful people in response to the fact that everything comes from God. And the more you're thankful, the easier it will be to combat that kind of uh, jealousy and, you know, and self-righteousness. I, sh- I deserve this. Second thing John knew was to recognise who you are. Jesus, John said, I'm not the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. I know that. I've, I've settled that in my heart. I am not the answer. I am not the centre. I am not the middle. I am not the one to whom the world looks. And that's a tough one for us because we all secretly believe the world revolves around us. But it doesn't. It revolves around Jesus. We are the, the guests at the wedding. Good to think about that. You're the guest at the wedding. You're not the one at the front of the altar that we should be looking at and then we celebrate as well. You're the guy or girl in the kind of the pews, in the seats, who's looking at someone else. That's who we are. And we look to him and he's the one it's all about. 
And the last one, the third one, is we recognise that our joy comes from Jesus getting the glory. John makes that interesting statement, doesn't it? My joy is now complete by seeing Jesus kind of lifted high and that ministry beginning and him going out and preaching the message. True and lasting joy only comes from him. You try and find your meaning, your joy in anything else, ultimately it will come to nothing. Whatever you put it in, you put it in a relationship. Even if that relationship doesn't sour an end, because sometimes relationships do that, it will not take the strain of being your, your, what you're trying to find your meaning and your completeness and joy. It will ultimately destroy you, destroy, them, destroy the relationship. You try and put that kind of weight on it. Even if it was with your children, they're not the answer. They're not the ones that you can find meaning and joy in. They bring you joy for sure. They bring you lots of other things as well, but they do bring you joy. But actually, they're not the ones that you find meaning in. If you give yourself to your work, and actually, I'm going to try and find joy in there. Work should be joyful, but only when it comes under God. If you try and take good things and make them God things, ultimately, they won't satisfy, and you'll end up just destroying them and destroying yourself. And actually, a true and lasting joy only comes with Jesus, through Jesus and putting him in the right place. He's number one, and then we recognise all the good things that come from him, like relationships, like work, like possessions, all those things. They're wonderful. But actually, he's got to be number one, and he's got to be on that, put it in that place above you. All right, moving on with the story. Okay, we get to um, verse 31, and what happens is it, it changes tone slightly, because we've got um, what most commentators believe, a, a commentary by John the author. So we've heard of what John the Baptist has got to say and then John is summing up this section in his Gospel and he's basically pointing to Jesus. He's basically saying, he's making an author's note that let me sum up everything that's gone before from the beginning of chapter 2 all the way to the end of chapter 3 here. And he's basically pointing to Jesus and saying, actually, Jesus is supreme. The reason why John can say, I must decrease and he must increase, the natural question should be, why? Why should Jesus increase? Why should he be better, greater than John? Why can John actually say that? Is that John kind of on a downer? Has John got kind of like uh, depression, self-doubt, self-loathing? Is he kind of, has he got a poor view of himself? Is he, is he crushing himself un- unnecessarily? Does he need to go to some kind of group to help him process this thing? But actually, no, he rightly understands who Jesus is. He rightly understands how great he is. And as John puts his little comment on the end of the chapter, he pulls out five things about how awesome and how supreme Jesus is. Let's go through them. First one, Jesus is supreme in origin. It says, he who comes from above. Jesus is from heaven. He is heaven sent. We've seen that because Jesus has talked about the Son of Man coming down. He's talked about angels at the end of chapter 1 going up and down. He says, you will see heaven Ascending, descending on the Son of Man, on Him. I'm the connection from heaven. I'm the one who's come. He's talking about being born again. You must be born from above. And He's the one, I know this. I'm from above. I can tell you this with truth that you must be born from above because I am there. We've looked right back at the beginning of the Gospel. How does it begin? In, in, in the beginning was the Word. Well, that's Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So he's been there the whole time, before the world and everything in it was created. Jesus was there. He is complete, um, he is infinite, while we are finite. He is above us, so he is supreme in origin. He is greater than us in every possible way. He's also supreme in witness. It says, uh, um, he who belongs to earth speaks in an earthly way. 
Jesus isn't from earth, he's from heaven. He talks in a heavenly way. His witness is above us. What he talks about from heaven is first-hand experience. It's like he saw the event. He saw it happen right there. It's like someone who's witnessed a, uh, you know, a great event or an accident or something. They're the ones you talk to because they are the eyewitnesses. They saw it. Everything else is second-hand, third-hand reported. You need to go to the main person. What did you see? What took place? Jesus is that one. I speak, he can speak firsthand of the glory of the Father. Jesus says, he says, I reveal the Father to you, I reveal God to you, I manifested his glory, it says in chapter 2, after the incident at Cana with the water and the wine, he manifested his glory. What glory was that? The glory of heaven, because that's where he's come from. So he is awesome. Even when he talks about um, the renewal of uh, you know, being born again. He knows about that. He can talk about it because he's from heaven. He is above. Jesus is the one who speaks the truth. He says to the people, doesn't he? I think it's probably four or five times up to now where he said, truly, truly, I say to you. That's truth, truth. Amen, amen. He's underlying the truth from his word. He is the ultimate expression of truth because what he speaks is completely right because he is God and he sets the boundaries. He sets the rules. We live in a, a world, a society, where it's kind of the, the expression is, well, that's true for you. Well, how dumb is that? You know, if it's true, it's true. It can't be true for me and wrong for you or that's true for you and wrong for me. There's got to be some arbitrary level of truth about right or wrong, morality, how we treat people, these kind of things. And Jesus says, I am that expression. I'm the one who brings it. I'm the witness. I, I bring you truth like that. It says actually to reject Jesus' word actually is effectively to call God a liar because Jesus is the one who speaks the very word of God. Jesus is supreme because... He's supreme in spirit. It says that he had the spirit without measure. Without measure. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was poured out on individuals, but usually for a specific uh, time, a specific task, a specific event, the Spirit came on. Guys, when they built the tabernacle, it came on the judges and leaders and prophets when they led the people into battle or they they made judgments or they spoke the oracles of God. But it was limited. And Moses kind of, you know, looked ahead and said, you know, oh, oh, if the Spirit could be on everybody. How do, you know, but it's not. It's limited. And then Jesus comes as the one who has the Spirit without measure. John the Baptist said himself, when... Back in chapter 1 it says, I baptise him and the reason I knew, how did I know he was the Messiah? Because the Spirit came and remained on him. It didn't go, it remained on him. It, it, was, it was there. We read Luke's Gospel, it says Jesus returned in the, from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. He had that on him. He was the one who brings God's Spirit and pours it out on his people. John actually says, in um, John the Baptist testifies in Luke's kind of Gospel, when he writes it up, he actually fits in some of the things that John doesn't. But actually, he says, Jesus is the one who's going to baptise you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to bring that. He's going to bring that sense. And when the church, in Acts chapter 2, Jesus says, wait here. Wait here, I'm going back. He said in the end of John, he says, better I go because I'm going to send someone to you. Get to the beginning of Acts, and he's saying, guys, wait. I'm going back to heaven, I'm going to send the one promised by my Father. I will send the Spirit on you, and it will remain with you forever. And the Spirit is poured out on Pentecost. The church rolls out of the, the upper room. They pre to preach. There's 3,000 added. The church is born. If you want to experience God, you go to Jesus because he's the one who has the measure of the Spirit that can be poured out to anyone. 
and everyone. Um, on all, so the Spirit was pulled out on all threads. So it's through Christ that we experience that. Through Christ we have that, because he's the one who's going to pour out the Spirit. The, the fourth thing that John says is that Jesus is supreme because he's the object of the Father's love. He's the one that the Father in heaven loves. He's the one who is, the, the Father desires to see his Son glorified. He's the one who wants to see his Son reign supreme. The one who is above all things. We see, if you look forward into Revelation that John also wrote, he, there's a lot about there's, what's at the centre in heaven. There's a throne. And who's on the throne? Well, there's a lamb looking as though it had been slain. Jesus himself is on the throne. He's the object of the Father's love. He is the one that, that the, 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 the focus of heaven is upon him. The love of heaven is on him. And, it, and it, it, this love is shown in action because it talks about the Father giving the Son all things, all things have been given into my hands, Jesus said, by his Father. And that brings us to the last one. Jesus is supreme in authority and resource. He's been given everything. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus just says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I've got it all. I'm in charge. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the one who gets to dictate what is right and what is wrong. He's the one to all powers must bow. Sickness, demonic powers, death, Even creation itself has to bow to him when he says to the storm, be still, it is still. When he says to Lazarus, come forth, who is dead, Lazarus comes forth because he has that power. So Jesus is supreme above everything. And how do we keep that in perspective for us? How do we live a life where we've got that in, you know, that's, that's in our view, in our focus? Let me suggest a few things to you that you can put into practice to help recognise and realise that Jesus is the one who is supreme and above everything. First one, worship. Regularly worshipping, regularly putting our minds and our focus on Jesus through singing, through praying, through speaking out, through reading scripture. By regularly doing that, it aligns our mind again. It gets us off the throne, reminds us who is on the throne and puts it back um, I do this, I try and do this regularly when one of our kind of routines in our house when we're doing bedtime process with the boys is I, I get a moment of time where I basically have to tidy up downstairs which after the boys have been out it usually looks like a bomb hit and I've got to tidy up all the kind of toys to play and get everything back together uh, I usually tidy up the kitchen, clean up, load dishwasher make sure everything's set just as we're going into the kind of the nighttime routine and I've tried to redeem that time but I play worship music loudly downstairs when I'm doing it and I sing along and try and make a mundane job a little bit more interesting but it's, it's something that I do regularly daily to remind myself that um, Jesus is the one who's above everything because that's what songs about you sing songs, you play songs I do that when I'm in the car. I'm very trying to listen to CDs that are, you know, good good worship music to remind myself. I love coming together um, here on a Sunday, and we're going to have a time in a moment where we'll worship God together and we'll put our focus and trust Him because it just it helps me align. Because as I go through the week, my focus gets shifted off. The world hits me in every possible way, and I my focus is shifted and I'm my I, I'm distracted, and so I worship as often as I can to put my eyes and my focus on Jesus. What's the second thing we do? Is, the second one is pray. If, we are, if you truly believe that God is above everything and over everything, and he can do, you know, he responds to our question and do great things, you will be prayers. Because people who pray recognise who God is. 
But I've also found the more you pray, the better, the more you recognise. So it becomes a kind of a, a nice circle. You start praying, it helps, and that will motivate you to pray more. He is the one with all power and authority. He is the one who's got resources to change situation. Um, there was a time this week when I, I kind of came to my daily time and I wrote in my journal, I wrote something along the lines of, Lord, there's a bunch of things going on in my life that is, I can do nothing about. And I listed them. People and situations. But I can do nothing about what's happening with them. But I can pray. You know, I, I think, you know, I, could, I haven't got any good ideas. I haven't got money. That I, can do. I can't change people's opinions or that change people's heart. But I can pray and I can bring something to you. But I know, and I know you can do it. And doing, going through process like that, regularly remind yourself, God's over everything. Jesus is supreme. He's the one who's Lord. And regularly praying. We've built it into the life of the church. Every week when our small groups meet, we pray together. We did it on Wednesday. Our group gathered and we had some food. We had a kind of catch-up and we had a chat. And then we prayed and we stood. It was actually in our house this morning. We stood and we prayed for God to break into people's lives that we loved. People we knew, people we wanted them to come and know Jesus. We stood there and we prayed. And when you pray, you feel both helpless and incredibly powerful. Helpless because you know you can't do anything about it. You know, you can talk to them, you can love them, but ultimately you can't change them. Being born again is an act of God, but at the same time you feel incredibly powerful because it's like, God, you can. You can do it. You want to save people. Work in these men and women's lives. So we pray together. This week we're not meeting in life groups, we're gathering together as a church to pray. Church at prayer. I encourage you, get there. We're going to bring requests to God. We're going to worship, put our folks in, and we're going to bring requests to God and make them. And we're going to ask them to do things that we can't do. Things that are way beyond us and way above us. We're going to ask God to save people. We're going to ask God to break into situations. We're going to ask God to multiply as a church, to affect this town, to bless this city. Whatever he wants. But we're going to just rain on requests on him, knowing that he delights to answer them. Third thing that you can do to remind yourself that God is supreme overall, and that is uh, repent. Repentance. Repentance just means turning away from our whole life. Jesus is God. He is perfect. He is above all things. We are fallen, finite creatures capable of sinning without really even trying. We, we break God's laws. We offend a holy God on a regular basis. We know as believers our position doesn't change. We are born again into his family. He is our father. We wear his righteousness. We can come boldly before his throne. We know we are loved. We are accepted. We are adopted. We are justified before him, declared not guilty. We know all these things, yet our condition changes as we go through life. And we make mistakes and we mess up and we are, we are rude to our friends and we are selfish and we are greedy and we are self-righteous and we presume on God's grace. We find ourselves doing these regularly. How do we keep coming back and recognising that God's above all and maintain that? We repent regularly. We regularly come back to God and say, God, forgive me for my sins. I want to turn away from those actions. We seek forgiveness and we repent before those we have offended. We do it first with God, but then we go and seek reconciliation with those we have wounded and hurt. And by doing that, by building that into our life, we recognise who Jesus is. That he is the one above. Ultimately, we are all accountable to him. We're all accountable to him, and we must give an account to him um, at the end. All right, let's see this. Let's close this down. Okay, last thing, last verse. 36. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. John puts this in at the end of this kind of section just to underline something. When it comes to Jesus, there's no middle ground. You're either for him or against him. You either believe in him, and that has implications, or it says you do not obey him, because Jesus commanded all to come to him. You either do not obey him. And for those who believe, there is eternal life. And in John's, as John writes with us, we know that actually begins now. There's, a, there's an inbreaking into our life now as you're born again and you serve him. But it's also the promise of life to come, something that is out there in the future that will only be consummated at the end. So there is those who can and enjoy that life now and live for that. But the consequences for rejecting God actually is um, you face the consequences of your sin, which talks about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a scary and horrible doctrine in the Bible, but it's in there and we have to preach it because it is true and right. And when we talk about God's wrath, we do not talk about um, kind of vindictive retribution of a malevolent deity. What actually God's wrath means is actually the righteous anger towards sin, towards offence. And it's something we can all identify with. You just have to go and look on the news, find any particular story you want and you'll find uh, something horrific has happened. There's been a murder, there's been an abduction, there's some injustice has happened and your reaction to that will be that is wrong, someone needs to be punished. The guilty will need to be punished. And we have court systems which deal with that. Uh, they're imperfect but they, they've what we've got. But we all know that wrong must be punished. And when it comes to a holy God, he was infinitely pure, infinitely good, infinitely right, Holy just means set apart, it means other, it means not like us. In terms of what the Bible talks about, it talks about God's holiness, more it talks, talks about his love and sheer numerical numbers. God is holy. When we get glimpses into heaven, the people who are looking at God, the angels and the living creatures, what are they saying about God? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what they're emphasising, that's what they see. And when you sin or you offend a holy God, you have to face his judgment because you have offended him. When you offend you know, somewhere in Arvin, you, you get punishment to levels. When you offend something infinite, the punishment is infinite and it is scary. And when it comes to following Jesus, there's no middle ground. There's following God, putting your wholehearted trust in him. Jesus came to earth. He lived the life, a perfect life, which we're studying now as we go through John's Gospel. He died on a cross, which we're going to get to. He rose from death on the cross. He took the punishment for our sin. He bore that wrath of his father. He rose from death and he said, come to me, come to me, come to me. You come to him, you put your faith, your trust in him and you are forgiven of your sins and you do not have to pay the penalty. If you choose not to obey, is what it says, that, that wrath is, is upon you and is waiting for you. And when it comes to the end, there's a judgment and all of us will have to give him an account. And either the result will be, did you accept Jesus? Did you accept his righteousness? Did you accept his forgiveness? And in fact, it's to eternal life. And if you didn't, then you must face the wrath of God alone without any level of protection, which is a hideous and scary thing. If you're not a believer here today, that wrath remains upon you. And I wanna, it would be remiss of me not to warn you and tell you. And if you're in that situation, I'd love to talk to you, pray with you at the end, work that through with you, what that means for your life. But don't, do not be 
in any doubt that that is the way. There is no middle ground with Jesus. It's this side or that side. It's like a line on the floor. You're on one side or the other. You can't straddle it. You've got to choose it. But for those who have followed Jesus, those who love the Lord, there is something wonderful waiting ahead. One day we're going to see God face to face. This supreme Jesus that we read about, that we grasp so faintly sometimes, and seems to, once you seem to have got it, it seems to go, we will see him face to face and be with him forever. And that is going to be a wonderful, awesome thing for the people of God. Amen? Amen. Let's get up. The band, you want to come? And we're going to put some of this into practice. We're going to worship him. Let me pray. I'll hand over to David. And we're going to engage with God. The kids will be brought back in in a few minutes or so.